And we are back with the next episode of Caffeinated Innovation here from the Innovation Works headquarters on Pittsburgh's north side from Nova Place. I'm still Pam Eichenbaum on the biz dev team here. And I'm Jen Van Dam, and I'm still on our marketing team. Welcome back, listeners. We're really excited once again to share with you a company that IW has supported and invested in through both uh, through our Alpha Lab Gear program, and we've been able to support them through their growth here in Pittsburgh and as they grow nationally. So today we have the one and only Brian Gaudio from Module. Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm glad Pam said your last name so I didn't mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) So Brian, before we get started... A very important question that we choose to ask all of our all of our guests is about their favorite form of caffeine or pick me up. What gets mm. them going in the morning or when they're tired? Of course, we are called caffeinated innovation. So tell us and tell the listeners. My favorite form of caffeine is at a particular place in a particular time. So my f- favorite morning routine would be getting to the Ace Hotel between 7.30 and 8 a.m. and having a coffee and sitting at that big table near the bar because it's quiet, there's some good music, and it's just me and the coffee and the Ace Hotel, mm. and we're just hanging out. That's that's the best caffeine I have in Pittsburgh. Wow. Oh, I love that. I do, and that's a nice little shout-out for you know our, our very own Ace Hotel here. Now, do you do that in other cities where there's an Ace Hotel? Um, you know, we went, we went through a program in New York, the Techstars program in New mm-hmm. York, and there was an Ace Hotel there and people did work out of it, but I was only there for evening. So I was more drinking, you know, the downers, not the pick-me-ups <laughs> at that Ace Hotel. So we'd go there for drinks and, and whatnot. <laughs> so Jen, what's your favorite form of caffeine? So I'm on something new right now. Please tell us. <laughs> uh, so actually, I don't even know what the brand is. I got it in my subscription box that just came for the summer. Um, and it is mushrooms with cocoa. And it's ground up, but it tastes like hot chocolate. You just put it in hot water. It tastes like hot chocolate. But So did the mushrooms replace the marshmallows? Is that what happened? So. <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to be really good for you. I actually don't know what it does or it's just – it's a fad. It's a trend and I'm trying it out. Any trend out there, Jen I'm will gonna... likely jump on it. She, Send me free samples. She is she's a marketing team's dream. Right? Uh, what, you know, about you? what are you but drinking? And I, I don't want to keep talking about mine. <laughs> well, just one comment before I share my caffeine of choice. The mushroom thing kind of worries me, right? It, They're not is that like, tasty? Oh, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that. No. Um, it is tasty. It really does it, just taste like hot cocoa. Is it flakes of mushroom? No, it's all – it's it... powder. It's just like a little powder bag like a hot cocoa would be. Hmm. It, okay. So – I'm going to bring – And there's one. also a little bit of nutrition in it, I guess, right? Some Because it's mushroom. It's, yeah. it's a vegetable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a new thing. Okay. Enjoy. <laughs> Please report back. So my favorite form of caffeine – I'm a creature of habit, sorry. I, I can't stray from my beloved mm. Earl Grey tea, right? Hot, iced, in in the form of cakes or cookies. Again, a creature of habit here. I'm, I'm sticking with the tried and true, the Earl Grey. Yeah. Sorry, listeners. Not Sorry you, to disappoint you. Have we talked about this? Do you drink iced Earl Grey? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. The iced Earl Grey at Zeke's mm. – on Penn Avenue is actually 
quite tasty. And I don't know if I've tried iced Earl Grey at other coffee shops in the city, maybe at Commonplace, but I don't make it at home. I think it's a little harder, but I, mm-hmm. I do enjoy Earl Grey in, in any form. I'll commit to trying some new form of tea <laughs> or form of caffeine. Lavender. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Brian. <laughs> the real hard-hitting questions. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the story of your company, Module? So I am a native to Pittsburgh. I grew up in the South Hills, and I boomeranged back to Pittsburgh in 2015. Um, My background is in architecture, so I went to architecture school uh, in North Carolina, at North Carolina State, and then I went to work in the industry. So I spent time at a couple of different places. I was at, I was in Los Angeles. I was at Walt Disney Imagineering where they designed the Disney theme park. So Mm -hmm. working on super fun, super creative. I feel like that's where I see every article that's about you is like, you were an Imagineer. Do you, (laughs) do you love that? It it was, (laughs) it was really fun. Mm -hmm. Working in Imagineering was really fun. Um, I was in their blue sky team Mm -hmm. and I was interning there, but they aren't necessarily grounded in real world problems. Mm. So working there, we were designing some, you know, I was working on avatar land that was in going to Disney's animal kingdom and all these sort of imaginary worlds, but I wanted to work in the real world, the tangible. Mm. So, um, could have continued there, but started focusing my efforts as a designer, being trained as a designer on this, you know, question of how do we bring more, how do we bring good design to more people? That was the question that's always been rattling around the back of my brain. And so spent time at some sort of public interest architecture, public interest design initiative. So I was in Biloxi, Mississippi at the Gulf Coast Community Design Studio doing, they started after Katrina doing um, disaster relief housing. We were doing a lot of planning when I was there um, because I was there post Katrina and then did a Fulbright in the Dominican Republic where was leading research on green infrastructure um, post-disaster and how sort of smaller neighborhoods could be more responsive and uh, designed in a way that could be more resilient after a disaster. So anyway, so spent some time really trying to figure out how, as a designer, how could my skills be valuable to real-world problems, um, specifically in urban areas. So did uh, was there... And then after that, directed a documentary on housing and on the housing crisis and solutions for affordability. So I was traveling through South America, traveled to five cities there, interviewing architects, designers, governments, community planners on what solutions they were coming up to increase the quality of life in the neighborhoods that they were working in those particular cities. So after that, moved back to Pittsburgh to start module. So... Tell us how you came to Alpha Lab Gear. And for listeners who are, you know, just interested in being reminded, Alpha Lab Gear is a program of Innovation Works, and it is our hardware accelerator located in the East Liberty neighborhood on Broad Street. And companies like Module and, and countless others who have a physical product solution are part of that that cohort uh, through the Alpha Lab Gear accelerator. So enlighten us. 
So we came to Alpha Lab Gear in 2016, um, and we we had a team at the time of two people full time: Hallie Dumont, uh, one of my co-founders, and and myself, and then Drew Brisley, other co-founder, hadn't yet quit his job. Um, so there was like two and a half of us, and we learned about Alpha Lab Gear. I think through, I think it was through an MIT Enterprise Now, is it the Pittsburgh Entrepreneur Forum, mm-hmm. one of their pitch competitions. And I think Alana was a judge at that pitch competition. And I think that was the first pitch competition we ever, like that's the first time we ever got money for what we were doing. And I remember we won $500. And I remember calling up Drew and I was like, we just got $500. How are we going to spend this money? Like, what should we do? There's so much money right now to, be, <laughs> to be used. Like, do we split it up? <laughs> should we pay for the model that we built? Um, so I think that's how we learned about Alpha Lab Gear was through the MRT Enterprise Forum, and we met Alana. And then we applied for the cycle that started in September of 2016. Mm-hmm. And um, originally, we did not get into the program. We were a pilot company, mm-hmm. um, and so we were allowed to hang out in the space, out in the common area, and you know, we said, hey, that's better than nothing, right? At least we have a roof over our heads, and we get to use some of the space, and then midway through that program, I think um, some a spot came available in that cycle, and they said, would you like it? And we said, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's how we got connected with Alpha Lab Gear. So tell us, so you mentioned two co-founders. How has the team grown since the beginning, early days of Module being two and a half? The first time the team grew was uh, bringing Drew on. So if you don't mind, I'll tell a little bit about my co-founders. Yeah, Please, absolutely. yeah. Um, so Hallie is... Her background is design. She has two design degrees, one from CMU and then one from Chatham in Master's in Interior Architecture. Ooh, Chatham, I'm an alum. <laughs> um, and Hallie was designing a tiny house in Pittsburgh with an architect, Eric Fisher, in town. So they were working on this project after her master's thesis to design a tiny house. And I was sort of co-working out of his architecture office and met Hallie there. And we said we had a lot of similar design ideals. And eventually Hallie joined our team on the first day of Alpha Lab Gear, actually. So um, she was, at the time, was part-time at an architecture firm. And then once we got into Alpha Lab Gear is when she officially joined our team full-time. But Hallie also has a background in contracting. So her and her partner, Jody, ran a contracting firm called Wall to Wall here in Pittsburgh that did a lot of bathroom and kitchen remodels. So they had experience building things. Nice. And Hallie's a great designer. She's a... Um, yeah, she's just a very good designer. And so I knew that I needed help <laughs> as any you know founder at the time who didn't have a s- second person on their team needs help. Uh, asked Hallie to join, and she did. And then in March of 2017, uh, I remember Drew, that's when Drew officially joined our team to become our third co-founder. And it's always tough, you know, getting people to join your team always feels like a win because it's, they're taking a big step, right, in taking a leap of faith into mm-hmm. something. And when they do that, it just validates, you know, what 
the company is doing. So I remember Drew was living in Seattle at the time, working as a product designer. Drew's background's in industrial design. So he, we actually met at North Carolina State. Um, so we've known each other since probably 2009. So we've known each other a long time, Drew and I. And he was happy at his job being a product designer, living in the Pacific Northwest where he could you know, hike and do all the outdoor things that he loves to do. Um, but Drew's really talented and he had worked on some other startup companies, had a patent to his name in the med tech world. And, um, but he wasn't ready to jump into Pittsburgh yet. You know, he's just like, I'm not, I don't know, like where are the mountains? And, um, so we had to be, we got into South by Southwest in 2017 and we needed to prepare. So we said, Drew, can you come to Pittsburgh for two weeks? We need you to help prepare for this. Really. That was our chance to get Drew to quit his job. Um, so, and you were successful. So yes, we were successful. Drew, uh, I was living in a house in Bloomfield in an extra bedroom. So Drew was sleeping in Bloomfield in the evenings and would walk because I don't have a car. So Drew had to walk into the office and one day he had too much coffee. Actually, he did say that. So caffeinated innovation. Drew had too much coffee and he walked in and he's like, all right, I'm quitting my job. And so he did. And that was right before we went to South by Southwest. So that was great. So we had three, that's kind of the, that was the hardest lift was getting our first three people together. And then since then our team's now seven, we'll be adding a couple of more people. We have a couple of jobs out there right now for a marketing manager and a sales associate. So we'll probably be at 10, um, by the end of this year, or early next year. And I think things sort of snowball, right? Yeah. As your team grows. And we've, have a couple of other employees from Carnegie Mellon, um, a lot of folks from Carnegie Mellon actually on our team. That's awesome. So for our audience, um, we know what Module is, but can you actually talk about what is Module, right? If they go to your website, I just jotted this down, your marketing says just enough house, your home designed to grow with you. What does that mean? So we are – redesigning home ownership for the 21st century. Um, you know, housing, we're, we're living in a time where a lot of things are becoming more convenient, right, for the average consumer, but housing is becoming more and more of a crisis issue in many cities, cities like Pittsburgh, cities like San Francisco, New York. It's becoming a, there's a point at which, um, you know, cities, good quality housing, that's affordable multiple in- income brackets is kind of the backbone of a of a equitable city and cities are breaking down because of their lack of housing for different types different people in the market and when we think about the problem why is this happening i think there's a couple of reasons why this happening um the first is that we've been building homes the same way since basically the advent of the suburban subdivision. So in the 1940s, they created the first suburb called Levittown in New York. And that was at the time, you know, post-World War II GI Bill, a lot of young families were getting started after the war. That may have worked for the 1940s, but we're living in the, you know, almost the 2020s and we can't be building homes the same way for that typical mom, dad, and three kids, leave it to Beaver family, right? That's actually not the number one U.S. household. Would you guys guess if I asked you, what is the number one household size in the U.S.? How many people? I think it's, what is it, one or two parents and 1.25 kids or something, which is not a number of child. So that might be the average, but the number, number one U.S. household is a single person living alone. 
Really? Hmm. Number two household in the country is two adults living together. And that makes up almost half of the U.S. households. And so Mm -hmm. why are we building five and six bedroom homes throughout the country if Mm -hmm. about half of our population doesn't even have children Mm -hmm. is a big question. And so I think there's a lack of product market fit with a lot of what the home builders are putting out there in today's market. You know, we have these millennials entering the age of home ownership. Um, Few of them have kids at this point. They may have a dog. They may have a partner. Um, And then we have a lot of baby boomers who are now empty nesters. Their Mm. kids went off to college and they're like, I have too much house. What am I going to do with all this? I want to downsize. So those are two parts of the market that are being underserved Mm -hmm. right now in terms of a problem. Um, another aspect of the problem is the construction labor shortage. So after the housing crisis in 08, a lot of contractors got out of the business said, I'm done. I can't deal with these cycles anymore. And a lot of those contractors were older. And so we don't have a younger workforce entering the construction trades. So the, who the heck is going to build our housing is a Mm -hmm. big problem here in the U S. So those two kind of problems Mm -hmm. are part of what modules addressing in our solution. So we're creating a Basically, we're redesigning home ownership by the amount of house you need today, a right-sized, energy-efficient, well-designed starter home that's built with 21st century construction techniques, and that home is designed to be expanded onto and be flexible as you're living in the space. So it's really thinking about how can the home serve you today? How can that home serve you in five years when your family might change? It might be that you have kids and you need to add more space physically like Lego blocks and stacking stories Mm -hmm. on top of your house. It might be that a grandparent needs to move in to your home and you need to add a bedroom on the first floor of your house. Um, Or it even might mean that you want to get into real estate investing within your own home and you want to Airbnb part of your house out or rent it out to a student or a teacher or someone. So we're really thinking about the home as a more flexible solution Mm -hmm. and we're leveraging 21st century construction techniques, a really great website, um, and we're building out a digital platform to make the process of buying a home much more similar to how we buy things online today. Mm-hmm. So, so many thoughts, Brian. I, I know you and I have had a few, com- more than a few, many conversations about this over the last few years uh, from you know our own respective backgrounds within this space of planning and architecture and how all of this kind of interacts with even urban redevelopment, right? So, in the spring, I know you had the opportunity to officially announce the uh, opening, if you will, which is not the right word, but uh, the completion, rather, of the first home you've, you've built here in Pittsburgh, and that's in, in Friendship. And for folks who haven't had a chance to take a look, I highly recommend you reach out to the module team because it is, it's fantastic. It's, uh, it, it is owned by a, a family, and they're planning to utilize it for their own, uh, I think, familial kind of needs, but it, it's really remarkable, the design and uh, everything related to it. But so let's talk a little bit about where. So you mentioned before this idea of, you know, we need to adapt our approach. We're not in the 1940s. We are not post GI bill. We are in the nearly 2020s and you have this kind of reversal of people wanting to live in cities, not as much in, in the suburbs anymore. Right. So not that it's a complete shift, but how do you envision in a city, right? Like Pittsburgh or like other major cities, you mentioned San Francisco and New York, how does module fit into the existing landscape when so much of those cities have been built up and built out? Right. So where do we go? 
So what's interesting, so New York and San Francisco are, there are challenges when it comes to developable land and the cost of that land. But in the case of Pittsburgh, we have a ton of space within the city, not in the metro area, but actually Mm -hmm. in the city proper that are perfect opportunities to build infill residential single family or two family dwellings. Um, why that is, is because we're a Rust Belt city. I'm sure a lot of the listeners are from Pittsburgh and know Pittsburgh story, but in the eighties, the steel industry died and we lost half of our population. And so if we were a city of 700,000, the city proper now we're around 350, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. 350,000. We lost half our population. Then half of the housing units were either demolished or became vacant. And so there's so many vacant lots. I think we've counted about 27,000 vacant lots in the urban core. And people in New York, are, their minds are blown when they hear that statistic. They're like, they just, that doesn't exist in mm-hmm. their cities. And so there are neighborhoods in Pittsburgh where there's this huge amount of vacant blighted parcels. And typically why that parcel is there is there was a home there. Someone moved out and the city tore that house down and there's now a vacant lot sitting there. And so we see that as a lot of potential um, because we're not doing greenfield development. Some of the larger home builders are going out, they're taking farmland and they're turning into houses. We're like, we don't need to do that. That's not necessarily the most cost-effective or environmentally effective use of our resources. Let's work on these infill sites where there used to be a home where we can already tap into the sewer and water and that are in desirable places to live. So you've seen a lot of infill development you know, in particular in some hot neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, like Lawrenceville, mm-hmm. like East Liberty, you've mm-hmm. seen a lot of new construction happening because as Pam talked about, people are now, you know, Pittsburgh is becoming, you know, or at least the downtown is, it used to be an eight hour downtown. Now we're trying to push that, you know, with more food and restaurants. And so as more people spend more time in this, in this city and the city becomes a desirable place to live, you see more um, people looking to move into the city who weren't living there already. Not to say that there aren't residents here in Pittsburgh who've been here and are living here now and are also in need of housing. But um, I see those 27,000 vacant lots as 27,000 opportunities um, to build housing. So what's the process been of acquiring those lots and then building on those lots, right? I mean, my understanding, and you really should give the details. I think you probably know better than I do, but working with the city and working with the urban redevelopment authority, it's a process, right? To acquire those lots and then to be able to build. And what is that like? And could anyone just do that? Theoretically, anyone could do it, but it's really damn hard. And that's actually a pain point that we believe we can solve for both the city and the people who are trying to live in the city. Um, cause as you mentioned, the URA owns thousands of properties. So does the city. And a lot of those properties, the URA may have taken into their own ownership because they were in disrepair, but the URA is a redevelopment organization. A lot of their projects are much larger, right? Mm-hmm. Larger commercial developments. Okay. And so these onesie twosie individual infill missing teeth lots, Walnut capital is not going to go purchase those and start building Oxford is not going to go do that. And so they're falling through the cracks and they're just sitting there vacant mm-hmm. and they're not on the tax basis. And what we approached the URA and spoke to them about was, could we create an infill housing strategy to 
turn those vacant lots that are sitting in your portfolio that aren't being put into active use because large developers aren't going after them, could we help turn those into homes for home buyers? Because we have home buyers who come through our website every week and they fill out a form on our website. We mm-hmm. put them in two categories. I own land or I don't own land. Guess what? Majority of home buyers who come, come to our website don't own land. They need help finding it. And so we're creating a database of available vacant property, some owned by the URA, some owned by private mm-hmm. entities, and trying to play matchmaker and saying, home buyer X, Pam wants to live in the East End. And she has these three neighborhoods this or the is neighborhoods. This a true story. <laughs> We've been working together to identify a place for right. a year and a half. <laughs> and so you have a couple of target neighborhoods that you'd like to live in. Yes. And so the question is, what are the, what are the available properties in those neighborhoods that are a good fit for us to build a home for you on? And then how could we help you acquire that property? So in the case, long story short, with the URA – they have a disposition process and it's fairly extensive and it's the disposition process is meant for Oxford development to go through that process when they want to buy the big parking lot and put up the 50 story building. But if you Pam Eichenbaum want to go and buy one lot and build one house on it, guess what? You're going to have to go through a lot of the same paperwork as that, as Oxford would to buy one lot. Mm -hmm. And that is something that you don't have the time for. And that's something that module could do on behalf of you. So we're trying to work with the URA and some of the other public entities on turning some of these vacant parcels into potential sites for home buyers to build houses on. So we have a land platform that just went live yesterday, actually, with some of the first lots that we're listing um, that home buyers can look at, click on, and say, "Oh, could I see myself living on this particular property? Here's the here's the lot that makes sense for me. Here's the house that I would build there." So that's we're trying to sort of streamline that process for new construction mm-hmm. in um, in Pittsburgh. Module, the realtor and con- and contractor of my dreams, uh, <laughs> all millennials. Actually, I would love yes. to just go to a website and have someone do the hard work for me. Yeah, no, I agree. And it sounds like the URA has been a really great partner for for Module as you've identified the process and really iterated the process. So. I think that's wonderful that you found a good ally here within the city's institutions, right? Yeah. So Jennifer Wilhelm, uh, we went through their seed seed investment program as well. And Jennifer Wilhelm has been an awesome resource for us uh, in helping us make uh, relevant connections with the URA. And then we've been working with uh, the URA's real estate team, Nathan and ML, who've been um, really helpful because we're not a big developer and they realize that and they actually are helping – they want to help us, um, you know, which is which is nice. So sorry to dominate the conversation, Jen. Uh, <laughs> I just know so much. You've about You've done Montreal. all this research. Uh, I have for my own place as well as in general. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, kind of this idea of you know not working just in Pittsburgh. How would the same process be replicated in another city? Right. So. Let's even take the San Francisco and New York out of it because I know that those are cities that are probably next to impossible, not impossible, but next to, but a city of a similar size and a similar age as Pittsburgh. I mean, could you do the same thing across the state in Philadelphia or could you do the same thing in, in a Washington, D.C. metro? What would that look like? So we have inquiries come in from around the country all the time to build houses with us. Um other parts of the world, other countries reach out. I think it's uh, because the housing crisis is real and it affects many people. It doesn't matter where you live. So we get a lot of inquiries 
And our strategy right now is that we want to double down in Pittsburgh. We'd like to become a real name in town. If you think about large developers in Pittsburgh, you might think about Oxford. You might think about Walnut. We want Module to be on that list, and we'd like to be on that list in three to five years. So that's our timeline. That's where we want to be, and we want to double down here in Pittsburgh. Um, We've had meetings in Philadelphia and in Detroit, so we've taken some site visits there and talked to some potential developers and potential home buyers there. I think Philadelphia would make a lot of sense because it's in the same state um, as Pennsylvania. And when we think about using prefab construction or offsite construction, uh, where parts of our home are built in a factory environment, the state has some type of regulation around that. And so we'd be dealing with the same sort of state body for, um, for construction. So I think Philadelphia would make a lot of sense. And we've had a couple, we have an LOI with one, um, person who's looking to buy land out there right now so i love it yeah someone from the philadelphia area gets me excited to hear that you're also interested in expanding there so that's great so i loved earlier that you were talking about how you know you had these jobs before and you weren't really getting to do good for the community working on real life problems is what you you talked about um And I know that that is a core tenet of Module, right? Like you're really trying to do good for the communities. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you're doing good, how Module's doing good, specifically um, responsible, equitable housing, and how you're playing your part? Sure. And that is one of the tenets on which we are founded is bring good design to more people. How do we represent and put more agency in the people who are living in housing as opposed to the people who are funding housing? Our first foray into that is a project that we're working on right now that we just received zoning approval for um, in the East End. And so it's a mixed income. It's a four-unit mixed income housing project in which we've acquired one property from one of the neighborhood development corporations and are working to acquire two others from the URA. So there's three parcels. We'd like to build a duplex and then two single family homes. And we'd like to sell that third single family home. They're all next to each other. We'd like to sell that third single family home to a buyer who is income restricted. Mm. So in Pittsburgh, an income qualified buyer, someone who makes 80% of the area median income. So 80% of the median income here in the, in the Pittsburgh area is who we would like to target that home to, Mm -hmm. to do that. You know, we don't have a magic wand that all of a sudden drops the cost of construction on that unit. So we're working with several partners to bring together, uh, several finance partners and we're co-developing that affordable home with a nonprofit developer. So we're going to leverage some of their connections and bring on a couple of partners, which we're calling the module innovation partners to bring this house to life and to sell that to an affordable buyer. Um, So we have a couple of partners that we're working with right now, and we're actually um, looking for corporations who care about healthy, energy efficient housing. If they care about that, we care about that. We have a project that's ready to go. We have a nonprofit developer on board. And that would be the best way for anyone in Pittsburgh who cares about housing affordability for home ownership to get involved. You heard it here first, listeners. Module is looking for corporations to come on and be, what, what was it again? Module Innovation Partners. Module Innovation Partners. Love it. 
I like it. Um, and so that project is our first attempt to get into affordable housing development. And affordable housing development, we don't have a silver bullet solution for that. I'm not claiming that we have that. I'm claiming that we're a company that's dedicated to the problem. Mm-hmm. We want to find ways to reduce our construction costs, build smaller is one way we can do that. Leverage offsite construction at scale is another way we can do that. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of factors when it comes to affordable housing from the cost of land to the cost of the tap fees that the city charges to the utilities and the utility companies that you're working with to the finance partners and all of those companies and those partners who are delivering a home to a affordable buyer have a responsibility to help deliver something at a lower price point. Mm -hmm. So those are the people that we want to work with. And that's our first foray into that. But at scale, we'd like to have a sort of, we call it a, an impact-driven real estate development model. So if, let's say in the next couple of years, we want to build 60 units. Some of those will be premium, some will be market rate, and some of those will be affordable. And profits from the premium units would help subsidize the affordable units. And I don't think many developers are doing that here in Pittsburgh right now. No, and not that, not that I've heard of. I mean, you know, Brian, it strikes me that there's a focus certainly on the, the premium and the market and then the affordable. But how do you consider the middle-income earner, right? And I know... I know we've talked about this a little bit, but Pittsburgh's median housing price is pretty affordable in comparison to other major cities. Mm-hmm. However, when you get to certain parts of this parts of the city, you end up seeing concentrations of very, very expensive homes, right? Mm-hmm. And then other parts of the cities where homes are much more affordable or probably undervalued. So how do you, and I, and I understand that you obviously are not influencing policy day in and day out, but as someone who's working in this daily, how do you envision Pittsburgh and other cities combating that issue, right, of, of having a focus on creating affordable options, having, of course, an overabundance of market rate or premium housing, but what about that middle-income earner? How do we fit that into the entire city? Of course, in relation so to homeownership. there are other cities that are serious about this, and, yeah. and they're actually taking measures to do that, and even states. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, I don't think, is serious yet. I really don't think that they're serious yet. There are some people in Pittsburgh and some institutions that are serious about it, but as a whole, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, California passed a law to allow accessory dwelling units. Mm-hmm. So to have a second – if you have one – let's say you have one lot. It's 25 feet by 100 feet, and you have a house in the front. That house might be, let's say, 50 feet deep. You have another 50 feet in the back of the lot. And what California passed is with that extra 50 feet in the back of the lot, you can put an accessory dwelling unit, an ADU, a one-bedroom, one-bathroom, sometimes two-bedroom home. And that can be rented out to to a teacher, firefighter, you know, a workforce, someone who is in need of workforce housing. So that's two houses on one lot, and that's legal now in California, mandated by the state. That's illegal to do in Pittsburgh, despite the fact that we have many Mm -hmm. lots that are zoned single family that have more than enough space to add a little bit more density. Mm -hmm. There is an overlay in the Garfield neighborhood on one particular area Mm -hmm. that's an overlay pilot. But that's one measure from a policy perspective that could help. Um, The other, you know, other ways that cities are doing this is looking at their. Um, giving density bonuses for affordable housing or for um, 
energy efficient building materials. So actually in Uptown, the Eco Innovation District, they have density bonuses if you're building affordable housing. So that's one example of where Pittsburgh has has tried to push the envelope a little mm-hmm. bit is giving developers bonuses if you're building energy efficient homes or affordable homes or you're doing on-site energy production. So that's one way we're testing it out. Um, but I think, you know, speaking and going to a lot of conferences in a lot of other cities, uh, we need to get serious about th- this problem here in Pittsburgh. We have to get creative about it. Um, and we're ready to be helpful. The creativity, I think, that you're bringing to a market that, as you even started with, has been somewhat stagnant and a product that's been stagnant, right, for, for so long. The fact that you're thinking about it outside the box both from an execution standpoint, from a policy standpoint, from a financing standpoint, it gives me a lot of confidence that some of these kind of rote processes that as Americans, as Pittsburghers, whatever, right, we can we can innovate and we can be unique in what we do, which that's inspiring. And, and I think to as you're talking about some of the price differences – in Pittsburgh, you see median home price. We'd like to advertise that medium home price in Pittsburgh is like one hundred thirty-five thousand um, dollars. I think there needs to be an update on median home price, and it's also specific to certain neighborhoods because exactly. we work out of a sender right now. And right, I look across the window every morning, and I see these townhomes in Bakery Square, <laughs> and those townhomes typically. I don't know all of the sales prices, but I think they range from six hundred thousand, mm-hmm. maybe yeah. some of them up to a million or mm-hmm. eight hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some new townhomes being developed in the Strip District that are sold out. I think a lot of them were selling around a million dollars. And you go across the river in Anetna or Sharpsburg, and you know you may be able to find houses or even Hazelwood. And you may see houses for $100,000, and it's this really strange price difference. And I think a lot of the new housing that's being built right now, the cranes that are going up and the new stuff that's online is not for people who are living in Pittsburgh. It's for people who are moving to Pittsburgh and don't realize what real estate is actually valued at here. Mm -hmm. So it's whether it's a CMU student who's moved here from another country and is – um, you know, has the means to go purchase or live in something that's really nice, or it's someone who moved here from New York or, or California. That's the housing that's being built right now, I think is for those, the majority of housing that's being built right now is for those people. And my question is, well, what are we doing about people who have lived in Pittsburgh mm. and need better housing solutions? Yeah. yeah. We want to be part of that solution. We're not the <laughs> silver bullet, as I mentioned, but mm. there's a need. Brian, I want to make sure we have time to talk about you as an entrepreneur. So you've been in this for a couple of years now, right? What is some of your advice or guidance that you would share with a budding entrepreneur who's listening to this episode and saying, well, you know, this is a person who really cares about the world, you know, wants to do good, really wants to help people, um, started this business. How can I do this too? Um, I would say to that person that our company hasn't figured it out yet. That's the first thing is that we look up to entrepreneurs who have been around for a lot longer than us Mm -hmm. and have a lot more revenue than us and are, and we are looking up, we're trying to look up and learn 
from them all the time. And so that's one thing about being an entrepreneur is you always have to be willing to learn and able to learn. And the other thing I would say is that um, this isn't pretty. <laughs> Building companies is not pretty. It's stressful at times. And it's something that you have to wake up and say, you know, do I really feel motivated to keep doing this? Because um, I see a good number of entrepreneurs in Pittsburgh who um, struggle with those things. So I, I would say we didn't get it off lab gear the first time. We, I'm trying to think of other examples. We applied to other things all the time and you will hear no a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's, that should be pretty much, you should be ready to hear no every single time you speak to someone. That should be like in the back of your mind, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's not a pretty process and there's no rule book for it. That's the other really challenging thing is that there is no rule book for entrepreneurship. And especially in the hardware space, I think more software, I feel, and maybe this is me being a hardware founder, you know, <laughs> but in software, you have specific metrics for a SaaS business, right? How, what's your ARR? And where, how much money do you need to raise once you hit that? Mm-hmm. In the hardware space, and especially in the home building tech space, there's like, is that really even a space? Probably not. <laughs> so charting your own desires and needs, the company kind of DNA is the most important thing to figure out. Because you can try to fit yourself into a box and say, oh, this accelerator is looking for X, Y, and Z. But guess what? If you don't want to build X, Y, and Z in your company, then don't apply to that accelerator and don't try to get money from that investor. So it takes a long time to figure out who you are as a company. We're still doing it, but I'm learning more about who we're not. And that's Mm -hmm. positive. That's awesome. I think that's really great advice actually. Yeah. And earlier even you said the two problems that you're really trying to address, right? I think a lot of startup founders probably forget about the the problem, right? That's what they're trying to address. That should be the the real push initially. And it sounds like from Module's perspective, you've kept those problems top of mind and really the center of the growth and the motivation since the beginning. There are founders who are building a really cool technology, right? A really cool black box that does magic. So that's this mm-hmm. black box that produces this magical end result and it's a technology. And they're saying, what problem is the most valuable problem for Mm -hmm. this black box? And there are entrepreneurs that are building companies like that, where it's like, I've created this badass black box. I may have spent the last three years or four years at CMU or Pitt developing the technology. And now what is the most valuable problem for this black box? That's one kind of business. The other kind of business is, this is the problem that we want to go after, that we care about. What is the right black box to Mm -hmm. build? And that's more of where we are as a company. So I'd say another thing is figuring out where your strengths are um, in your founding team and what kind of company you really want to be. Mm-hmm. If, it, you know, for us, there's a underlying mission behind what we're doing. And so our so- housing solution, could it be really great to build, I don't know, like hotels with it or, you know, trailers for oil and gas and things like that? Maybe, but I don't care about those problems. Right. Right. I love that you said that because I've heard Alana Diamond, who's the managing director of hardware here at Innovation Works, say a hundred times to companies, 
to understand what your problem is first, um, what you're trying to solve before you build something, before you go out and try to, you know, market this product that you've built and you don't know who's going to try to buy it. Um, so I think that ties back into what you were saying about, you know, you don't just go to an accelerator or take money from the investor because they're offering it, right? You want to make sure that there's a fit there. So, Ryan, I think our last question is where can we find you? Best way to get to Module is through our website, modulehousing.com. And you can find us at our house if you guys want to take a tour. So Ooh. I would highly suggest taking a tour of our first home because it's only available before our clients, before their parents move in. Um, so this summer it'll be available for tours, modulehousing.com. And it's right there on our website. Um, and if you have any questions, uh, you can find me at brian at modulehousing.com, B-R-I-A-N. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining us. We love hearing the module story. I feel like we could talk about this for hours, so at least I could. <laughs> <laughs> Is Pam your next customer? <laughs> They've been working on me for a while. <laughs> But yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Brian. And for all of our listeners out there, enjoy that cup of caffeine as you innovate something great. Innovation Works is the Southwestern Pennsylvania Ben Franklin technology partner. Music created by Ethan Ziegler, Startable alum. Special thanks to our season two producer, Sidekick Media Services.